Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The Real Estate starts now. Today's episode is Land and Sea, where we discuss how the land under our oceans can be used and how people like you and me can benefit from it. We're excited to welcome our guest, Bill McKeever, an ocean environmentalist, documentary filmmaker, and author. Bill was a well-regarded Wall Street analyst before turning his focus towards ocean conservation. He's produced Empires of the Deep, a documentary that takes us into the world of sharks, published a similarly titled book, and is now focused on education, reef creation, and offshore farming. Bill is the founder of Safeguard the Seas, a nonprofit whose mission is to educate the public about the threats to the oceans and its wildlife through books and film. Bill, welcome to the show. Jamie, thank you. It's great to be here. Alex, thank you guys for inviting me. Tell us a bit about yourself, Bill. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, um, you know, I grew up and uh, after I got went to business school, I ended up coming to New York and I worked on Wall Street for uh, for a long time, actually about uh, 20 plus years. And I made a transition into the world of conservation. And as you mentioned, uh, I did a film about sharks and about what's going on in the high seas and then wrote a book that encapsulates that and brings in a lot of information uh, about what's happening to our oceans. So it's sad to say that uh, they're under the greatest uh, threats they've ever been in the history of, of the planet. So uh, so I'm focused on that and um, always delighted to talk about the oceans. So Bill, how did you start thinking about the oceans and the importance of it? Yeah, well, you know, I was uh, out east and you know, I, I grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia. You'd always go to the shore. It's not the beach there. It's known as the shore and fell in love with the ocean. And I was out in uh, Montauk and I stumbled on a shark tournament. Now, for your viewers that don't know this, the shark tournament is where people go out to catch the biggest shark. They bring the shark back. Uh, they, they, they gamble to see who can do get to catch the biggest one. And then they throw the shark literally in the garbage. And that got me so angry at the waste of this magnificent uh, predator that I decided to do some investigating, did a short film about shark tournaments and I wanted to put an end to them. And it just it kept snowballing. I kept learning more about sharks and ended up uh, working with Greenpeace and going on the Rainbow Warrior, finding out these horrible things going on the high seas. And I had so much information, I wrote the book, Emperors of the Deep. So. Uh, that really got my journey started. And now I'm full-time focused on what we can do to save the oceans and, and in turn help ourselves. Because if the oceans die, tell you what, we die. Bill, what's that statistic that you mentioned that always uh, stuns me about how many people sharks kill and how many sharks people kill? Yeah, so the uh, last year there were five people killed around the world. Now, that's what, six billion, seven billion people, and uh, we don't know how many sharks are out there. But in reverse, humans kill 100 million sharks a year. Most of that is for the Chinese shark fin soup market, but it's still a staggering number that takes place every year. And that, to me, is uh, is a tragedy because sharks are a keystone species. They are crucial to the health of the oceans. Apex predator, right? For, and what does that mean exactly? An apex predator. So if you look at the marine food pyramid, you obviously in the ocean have the phytoplankton at the very bottom, and then they feed 
the small fish and then they're eaten by what's called mid-level predators and at the very top of that system is the apex predator and that apex predator is key because they keep all the various species uh in in line so that no one species grows in number and monopolizes all the resources the ocean is all about diversity interconnection broad number of species and the sharks are the only species that can make that happen. You take the sharks out, we've seen time and time again, it's a disaster for the ecosystem. Interesting, and uh, your, your focus um, as you move uh, past the sharks and try to expand how you're helping the oceans, uh, you've talked a little bit about artificial reefs, which to me would indicate a place where divers can go and have something to look at and and fish congregate but it's much more isn't it yeah yeah it, it is and and uh, i think you know when i look at the oceans uh, we actually do a pretty good job in the united states of managing resources and, and we're not overfishing too much but around the world that is not the case there are many regions where uh, areas have been have been fished out many species like the bluefin tuna that are in serious trouble and so I'm calling attention to the fact that humans are overexploiting the oceans and overfishing. And what we can do uh, is help to turn that around. If we create artificial reefs, we create a habitat, an environment where fish can, can congregate, they can uh, find food sources on those artificial reefs, and that population of fish grows. And that leads to all kinds of wonderful things. It means there's fish for recreational fishermen, obviously commercial fishermen as well. And on the recreational side, people can go snorkeling, they can go diving there. So it's a win-win all the way around. And that's why I'm so excited about artificial reefs there. They are building momentum on the East Coast of the United States. I wanna see more of it. You know, as you mentioned uh, about sharks, it's really interesting and you know, we, as humans are land creatures and we have been entering into the oceans, which are the sharks territory. So they're kind of, sounds like they're defending their own turf. At the same time, we're also pulling resources from the ocean. So it sounds like with the artificial reefs and a few other projects you're working on, uh, it's a way for us to, um, to both take resources, but also give back in a way to the oceans. Yeah. Well, what are some of the ways in which um, you're thinking about how we do more in the oceans, do more with the land underneath the oceans uh, that ultimately better our world? Yeah, yeah that's a great question, Alex. And, and I think if we step back for a second, and if we look at uh, humans since we appeared about 200,000 years ago, we've been exploiting uh, the resources around the world and particularly uh, deep in the oceans. And, and I think that we need to have a change in consciousness of moving away from exploitation to one where we work in concert with nature so that we produce food in a way that's sustainable, that's actually good for the environment. And I, I think about what uh, the great Jacques Cousteau said. He said, you know, uh, the mark of civilization is moving from hunting to farming. And uh, we've done that on the land, and now we need to make that pivot also in the oceans, where we're farming the oceans, not hunting. Now, what do I mean by that? We are hunters now on the ocean. We take out the tuna, the sharks, the swordfish. This is, a, I think, has to change, frankly, because we're running out of resources. And when we farm, we're actually building things that can grow in the oceans, and that could be 
things like bivalves, mussels, scallops, that sort of thing, and also vegetables, uh, seaweed, kelp, that sort of thing can also grow in the oceans. And when we do that, that's actually very good for the environment because the, those kelp beds uh, help to provide habitat for little fish and those fish grow up and even by the big fish. So it creates a good solid marine ecosystem and it's also good for us. And I think that this change is now crucial to take place because we just cannot continue on the current path of overexploiting the marine resources. So Bill, when I go into a store to buy fish, I see wild salmon, I see farm salmon. When I read from chefs what I should buy, they say buy the wild salmon. Uh, aren't we already farming fish? And, and why is that not a solution so far? Why has that not been a solution so far? Yeah, we, we are farming fish, uh, tilapia, salmon. Uh, now they're, they're also doing that with tuna. But the way we've gone about it has been the wrong way because we create more problems when we farm fish in the ocean. So to your point, yes, it is much better to eat wild fish like wild salmon. Now, why is that? Well, if you look at uh, what happens on, say, a salmon farm, they will have literally hundreds of thousands of salmon swimming in a very small area. Well, those, those animals are going to poop and that gets washed down to the bottom and that destroys the local ecosystem. There's too much uh, nitrogen, essentially too much fertilizer. It is a, a hazardous material. So it kills off a lot of the, uh, the animals that are living near that salmon farm. And that's just the beginning of the problems that we see with farming fish. Uh, salmon that are in those tight environments get what's called sea lice. And that sea lice multiplies like crazy, gets on the fish, and that sea lice can escape and, and affect the wild populations. And, um, and there's also the risk that these farm fish can escape and put their DNA in the wild salmon, which is a, which is a negative. So I could go on and on. I think the proof of the pudding is that Washington State has banned uh, farmed fish for that for all those reasons that I mentioned. So we need to think, how can we get fish uh, protein out of the ocean since farm fishing is not the way to go? Yeah, that I love that uh, analogy because I think about farming in general and, and what that's done in the modern industrialized world where we have problems i.e. with salmon, as you mentioned, what's our problem with chickens? We have problems with cows and we start farming, we start over farming, the runoff, the methane gas, the pollution that gets, gets caused by all that stuff. It's the industry that then just takes over um, what the good intention was of having food available to more people more of the time. So I can really get that. So now we move into um, uh, things like kelp, uh, as you mentioned, and I think of great things like kale. This <laughs> was the great superfood, and I'm sure kelp is a new frontier for protein and or for for nutrients and all that good stuff. So, um, where is the future going? In yeah, I, I think we're, we're going to see uh, a lot more ocean farms take place, and just by the very name, it's, it's a farm where you grow various resources, and there are literally thousands of different kinds of kelp now. Kelp is essentially a seaweed. And uh, there are three very broad categories. There's green, brown, and, and red. And each one has its uh, advantages. Um, the, the red kelp is uh, actually very flavorful. A lot of farmers are taking that 
and putting it into seasonings for soup. They can also be added to salads for your cooking. So it's not just for eating, it's also for Im improving your food. Um, there, there are other uh, vegetables uh, that are coming out of the sea from, the, from the, the kelp. That's actually very nutritious for us. Uh, iodine is very important for young children, for brain development. Uh, there's tremendous amounts of iodine in, in seaweed. And we, it's hard to get that, that kind of uh, vitamin and minerals today in, with the current industrialized uh, farming. So these are all ways that we can get great nutrition. And what I love about ocean farming is you don't need anything to, to add to it. It grows on its own. So if you're a farmer, put it in the water, put in the seeds of the kelp and leave it alone. Come back in a few months and, and, you're, and you're done. So unlike land, as you mentioned, adding all this nitrogen and phosphorus, which is bad for the environment in the ocean, you don't add that. There's so much nutrients in the ocean. The kelp literally sucks in all these minerals uh, and grows. And then when we eat the kelp, we absorb all those very important minerals, the carbon, the uh, potassium, uh, the sodium, all these great things that we need. So Bill, so what is a typical sea farm look like and how much space is required in order to have one of these things? So, uh, you know, uh, to, uh, so far, I would say in uh, the farming 1.1, a farmer has been growing one crop or one species. So someone might, for example, be growing oysters. Uh, another farmer might be growing just kelp. Um, and what I think is going to happen is that you're going to see farms grow that are doing multiple products. So one, one great example is uh, sea urchins. A lot of people like to eat sea urchins. When you're growing the kelp, urchins are natural at, at eating kelp. And on a farm, you have so much kelp, you can let the urchins uh, eat pretty much they, as much as they want. They get big and fat. So you harvest the urchins and the kelp. So you're getting protein and, and a vegetable. And that's just one very simple example. There's so many others out there. So I think in the future, multiple products, farms being very creative with what they're producing. And again, all of this is underground, unseen from the human eye. Well, Bill, you mentioned there three types were green, brown, and red. So clearly an all-out effort and creative naming in the kelp world. But... Um, <laughs> When I have a kelp farm offshore from maybe a farm or a house uh, or a dock, um, what happens when I'm sitting there having my pina colada and somebody's driving by water skiing on top of my farm? Who owns that land and those rights? How, how does, for somebody who's, who, who's not as informed like myself, how does all that actually work legally? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, and the short answer is that no one really owns that, that land underneath the, underneath the waves, the sea land, as, as I call it. It's for everyone's use. So, for example, as you mentioned, a guy water skiing with his family, he, he can use that water. A recreational fisherman has the right to drop their line in, so forth and, and so on. So a sea farmer or ocean farmer is just working in concert with all these other users. And what has to happen is that you need to be able to control your land where you're growing or sea land where you're growing your, your, your products. And the way to do that is to get a permit from the state. And in that permit, it's up to you, the farmer, to put your location where you're away from the 
uh, people are driving their ski boat and, and people fishing. So it's it's hard. You have to be thoughtful about where you put these farms because anybody can use that uh, ocean space. Well, since nobody owns that space, can somebody come in and grab my kelp and steal it? I mean, what rights do you have once you once you um, uh, once you grow the kelp? Do you have any ownership of that kelp? Yes, you do. So when you apply to the state, uh, you apply for a permit to grow a particular product in a very specific area that's all dictated where you're going to be growing your product. And then no one else can step in there and grow uh, a product of, of any sort. And the product of all that is yours, which you obviously then sell it in the marketplace. Now, you mentioned uh, to me once that there was not just the demand uh, for the edible product, but was it pharmaceutical companies or vaccines, speaking of COVID, that use some of the elements that are, that you, that are derived from kelp? Yeah, you know, and I love talking about that because one of the great things about kelp is, as I mentioned, it has all these wonderful nutrients. And uh, scientists have been able to parse the kelp apart, and they have found some components that have some very interesting medicinal purposes. So, for example, obviously with COVID, we're all searching for antiviral materials. And there's a flucosan compound that's found in kelp that might be, and that some studies have proved this out, could be an antiviral. So you could make it into a nose spray or, or something like that. And uh, so, you know, we can look at the uh, kelp as something that, that's medicinal. And, and that's actually not surprising because as we know with antibiotics on land, they basically come from plants and fungus and that sort of thing. So we're just doing the same thing on the water. And this is an area that has really not been studied. So we're going to find a lot of medicines and, and remedies coming out of, uh, out of the ocean. Well, that's interesting. So when you think about where you grow or where you can grow, as you mentioned before, figure out where to get your permits so that intruders don't intrude onto your crops and your location. But are there better locations than others? Uh, you know, how does location matter in the ocean farming business? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good question because, uh, you know, as you're setting up your farm, there are a lot of things you have to consider. Number one is you like to have cold water. Why? Because cold water has lots of oxygen already in it. It has a lot of nutrients uh, that are available. And so uh, areas that do very well are up around Maine and, and, and New Hampshire, not to say that other states can also grow kelp, but that's, that's a prime uh, area. So that's, that's very important uh, to have that. Number two is, um, you know, the great thing about kelp is it, you know, it, it actually cleans the oceans and sucks up a lot of material and even carbon dioxide. And I'll just mention as a quick aside that the oceans have absorbed two thirds of all the carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere since we started burning fossil fuels. So that, that kelp is, is soaking this up. So you don't want to have a farm that's near a, a town that obviously there's, there's storm drainage and there are materials coming in from the road because uh, you don't want to get that in the kettle. So you want areas away from people, pristine areas that are taking in all those wonderful nutrients, nice cold water. And, uh, you know, that's that's a, that's the ideal place to put your farm. So you have to put a lot of, lot of thought into it. So if I just, for example, bought a place, a piece of property in Long Island, for example, and I say, you know what, let me just 
go to the ocean. I am on beachfront property. Let me set up a farm and grow some kelp and then apply to the city or the state for some carbon emission reduction tax credits. Can I do that? Is that something that actually could happen? Yes, absolutely. Uh, It has been proven that the kelp does soak in the CO2. And I think in the future, if that becomes a major way of dealing with climate change, I think you're going to you're going to see that uh, develop uh, up and down the East Coast. Yeah, at, at some point we're going to have too much kelp if it's if it's that good. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, just as a quick aside, Jamie, on that, as uh, I was talking with some Maine farmers, and some of them just focus on the wild kelp that grows naturally, and they sell that very very successfully. And uh, and there's been no no surprise that man has overexploited the wild kelp and those wild kelp beds are down. The populations are down 90 percent. So uh, we've got a long way to go to get back up to where we used to be. And, uh, you know, before man interfered with the oceans, there was seagrass kelp all over the world. And we've done a pretty good job of getting rid of it. You know, when you say man in oceans, you know, you, you, I go back to your quote from Jacques Cousteau, which I used to love as a kid. Uh, you know, he was the one of the the creators of the Aqualung. Right? So I think one of his biggest visions was finding a way for man and um, the ocean wild to coexist in some in some um, beneficial way. And so when you look back and you think, OK, what does that look like? I wonder, um, clearly, we're starting now with farming. I know that we're moving into um, you know ways of being able to solve the environmental problems and issues, but, but what about the entertainment factor of it, right? What about when the work that we do as man makes the oceans a lot more fun for everyone? And so when you think about theme parks on land, now putting theme parks underwater, and creating entertainment zones underwater. Is that a thing? Is that something that we can start to look forward to in the future? Yeah, I, um, I, I think that if you, know, if you look at what's going on in New York State, the governor has been very active putting, uh, developing artificial reefs. So what they'll do is they'll take old tugboats and ferry boats, sink them, and then they become the ideal spots for scuba divers, for snorkelers. Lots of fish show up to those sites for food. And so you see all those Recreational fishermen can uh, send their boats out, get right over that uh, sunken vessel and catch lots of fish. So there, there is a lot of entertainment that, that comes out of this as well. So it's a nice side benefit. And the only, uh, the only people I've ever seen who are able to live underwater in harmony with the ocean are James Bond villains. I mean, half of their movies, the villain's lair is underwater and it looks really cool until you got to go get some milk. Um, speaking of these artificial reefs, it was always surprising to me when I heard what they were dropping, old subway cars. The first thing I think of is rust. I mean, we've all been in the ocean or have anybody scuba diver snorkel and you see that piece of metal or rust, it just looks bad. You don't want to step on it. How is it that they're dropping these type of things in the ocean and that's beneficial? Yeah, well, that, that I think over the last uh, five, 10 years, there's been a, a sense that you got to be careful what you put in the ocean. Originally, they thought, well, we can put tires in and that'll be fine. And then they realized that the tires leach com- compounds that gets in the ocean. That's very bad. Tires are essentially in, in New York. Those tires were attached to bodies, but that's a different story. <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> and those and those drums with nuclear waste—that was not a good idea for artificial reefs. That didn't last too long. 
So, so, so they started change and they realized that things like subway cars and tugboats and vessels are perfect because yes, while they may rust, that's a natural compound. That's just oxidizing iron. Uh, so when they put one of those boats in, they go in, they strip out all the electrical wire. They take out all the oils, all of the, and anything that could be a, a threat to the environment. So these are now super clean sites. So, you know, they're talking about putting in the Staten Island Ferry, which is a huge vessel. It's going to take them a couple of years to get that vessel ready. So I think the regulators are a lot smarter about this issue. So artificial reefs, starting to use the land underwater to farm. Uh, what about farming fish? What is a solution if farming them in tanks is no good on land and we're trying not to deplete them in the ocean? What is, is there a better way to farm fish? Well, yeah, I, I think that there is. And, and I think uh, first, just to step back, I think getting protein from the ocean is the way to go is really through these bivalves. These uh, farms, a lot of them are, are, are sometimes uh, oyster only, but many of them are growing. They're adding scallops and mussels and, and they're filled with protein and uh, very good, good minerals. That's what we should be eating instead of fish. So, Bill, when you say bivalve, what is a bivalve? So, bivalve is uh, like a clam. It's sitting there underwater, and it uh, has a valve, and it takes in the seawater as, it, as it's going by, and it pulls in nutrients. The benefit of that process is that it helps to get rid of all the gunk out there, so it's very good for cleaning the cleaning the water. And the animal that does that uh, is actually made of muscle, which is what we can eat uh, to get protein. So bivalves are scallops, they're mussels, they're clams, uh, urchins, uh, probably missing something else along the way, and they're wonderful to eat. Now, I think it's it's okay to eat eat fish that are sustainably caught, that there are lots of them and catch them in a way that doesn't deplete them. Man has done a horrible job of fishing and, and doing it that way. And uh, and I think, Jamie, to your to your point, if we can take the farmed fishing Actually, it doesn't belong in the ocean. It belongs on land in tanks where you can control the quality of the water, the fish poop, uh, make sure they're giving the fish the right nutrients. We can grow fish that way that's actually good for us and, and doesn't harm the environment. So I think we've got a lot of pieces of the puzzle together. And I think this is an exciting area that a lot of people should think about exploiting. Yeah, you know, I, I love that. You know, I think that it's not that great for people who have a shellfish allergy, but other than that, I think it's awesome. Uh, you know, when I think about, um, and maybe even perhaps there's like a beyond meat alternative. So a beyond bivalve <laughs> company that comes out and creates something unique. Uh, <laughs> but you know, if you're, if you're a, um, a farmer, uh, like if you're a traditional farmer, so you, you know, you farm beets uh, or you farm lettuce I know there's a lot of movement towards uh, near, you know, vertical farming or near um, farming or farms that are closer to urban centers uh, to get the food closer to people that actually consume it. Is there um, an issue with regards to actually farming or harvesting um, these resources and getting it to consumers? Is there any, you know, where's the, is there a disconnect? Is it, is it as easy as it would be if I owned a farm, you know, in upstate New York? Yeah, well, it, you know, it could be very easy because at, at one point, uh, New York Harbor had some of the biggest oyster reefs in the world. And uh, through pollution, they were destroyed. So the only place we can eat oysters safely 
is now uh, near Fisher's Island, up in Rhode Island, that sort of thing. So yes, there is a logistic transport of getting those bivalves valves to market, but that's that's really not uh, that much of a stumbling block. Uh, what was actually more of a stumbling block was with COVID, a lot of restaurants closed, uh, people stopped going out, they weren't ordering oysters. So it's sadly been a tough time for uh, farmers of late. But I think of all the all the issues, transport's not a big one. I think it's more of man just managing the farm and, and making sure that uh, you know you don't have storm damage or anything like like that. That uh, there are lots of little things that can come up. I can just see the cows walking out into the field one day. They look to the right. There's a big tank of salmon. Well, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, let me ask a question, man. Obviously, uh, ocean conservation uh, is a big topic all over the world. Um, global warming is a big topic all over the world. Um, you actually uh, got off your ass and actually filmed a documentary and wrote a book. Your advice to other people who are trying to make a difference the way you're making a difference, how hard was that or easy was that or if there is a stumbling block or two to moving this type of, of activity forward, what did you find it is? Um, I, I think that it's just uh, acquiring the knowledge. I think that, as you said, Jamie, there's, there's so much bad news about what's going on with the environment and, and people get discouraged. And it took me a while to realize that there is something that I can do that each one of us can do. And you don't necessarily have to write a book but just think about your own purchasing habits. When you go into the supermarket, buy fish that's sustainably caught. Don't buy farm tilapia that uh, could have all kinds of uh, bad ingredients in, in there for you. And uh, and then get involved with, there's so many great NGOs out there. Uh, Greenpeace is doing a lot of things. They have, for example, beach cleanups from time to time. And uh, Oceana has, there's a lot of work with uh, politicians trying to get laws passed. And so you can get involved and you can make a difference by what you eat. And I just think it's so important. So nobody should get discouraged. Just jump in and do it. You know, it took me, it did take me a while. I didn't quit uh, my old job and then just start this day one. It was a transition period, getting used to it and uh, making an adjustment. And you have to learn along the way. But it's, it's a wonderful journey, and uh, I think it's one of the most satisfying things anyone can do. Now, you've started a nonprofit called Safeguard the Seas. Can you tell us a bit what that is? And there is something going on between the book and, and education for the schools? Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to educate people about sharks and to realize, to, to take this Jaws myth, make people understand that sharks are not these villainous creatures. This myth that Jaws created is absolutely wrong. And so I'm uh, getting the book out there and Safeguard the Seas is a nonprofit, 513 organization that is out there getting the book out there. So I have a book donation program to give to students, high school, college level and, and beyond. And I also have a film, Members of the Deep, which is about to appear on Apple, iTunes and Google Play, again, to show people what's really happening to sharks and what's happening out to life on the high seas. You know, we're overfishing the bluefin tuna are on the verge of going extinct. And so when people know about this, I think they're going to come back and, and get angry enough to do something about it and, and get involved. So that was the point that uh, I, I have in Safeguard the Seas. And, and, and I think there's there are more exciting things to come for Safeguard the Seas. 
I think these artificial reefs uh, are going to be something that I'm going to be pushing and, and encouraging. So you can follow me on safeguardtheseas.org and sign up for the uh, email list and, uh, you know, participate with me or so many great organizations that are out there. You know, I really love what you're doing and you, along with so many others in the space, trying to create more awareness around the urgency of protecting the seas. You know, I think about um, myself it's and people that I know, uh, there's this concept of out of sight, out of mind, right? If we don't see it, it's not an issue. However, if there was a large pile of garbage in our backyards, you know, we would very much you know, want to do something about that. So the mere fact that a lot of this stuff is happening out in the oceans and we're not, it's not, we're not, we're not, vis- it's not visible to us right away. You know, it, 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 it breeds complacency. So the urgency, uh, the work that you guys are doing that you in the stuff that you're creating is fantastic. So I applaud you on that. Um, you know, I think that the question I have for you is, is kind of where, where are we going with this in terms of how we educate the layman, the normal person about the value, but well, the, the, the problem that we're facing, which I, which it sounds like we, a lot of organizations are doing the one, but, but more importantly, the value that we can get, that's even that's untapped from the oceans. Like how do we start to tell those stories? How do we start having those conversations? Yeah, so um, I, I think that uh, I think just by uh, by by getting involved and uh, keeping track, you know, there these organizations I mentioned, uh, they have sign up sheets for volunteer activities where you can go out on a beach cleanup or you can sign a petition uh, in the United States. Amazingly, we allow for the trade of shark fins. Even Canada to the north has enough sense of uh, banning trading in, in shark fins. So getting people involved to, to, to join these organizations that can get legislation, we've made progress over the last few years because when people care and they send letters and emails to their representatives, uh, you know, politicians do think about what their constituents want and the groundswell is building. And that's the thing that gives me case for optimism that or cause for optimism is is that um, more and more people, the next generation is coming along, you know, and they see what's going on out in the oceans and it breaks their heart. So, you know, they want to get involved. They want to see things happen. So I can't stress enough that getting involved, even from just joining a a nonprofit uh, mailing list to um, doing something more than that, uh, you know, being part of a, uh, you you know, like I did, I, I, got a group of people together to sign a petition that would stop uh, killing sharks in trophy tournaments. So there's plenty to do out there, and it's just the will to go out and get it done. Bill, speaking of sharks, you mentioned a couple of times shark fin soup. I've never tasted shark fin soup. I've never even seen it on a menu here. But when I was in Singapore about a year and a half ago, uh, all the fancy restaurants had it on their menu. Could you just explain to to our listeners exactly why that is? Uh, in such demand and how the growth of the middle class, which we uh, we welcome and celebrate around the world where third world countries grow into middle class, how that has made things actually worse for the shark population in the world. Yeah. So if you go back uh, to about 1000 AD, the Chinese emperors, uh, of course, wanted to build prestige around themselves. And so they, when they would catch a shark, which, of course, the villagers were very afraid of, and they would eat the shark fin soup. 
it became a sign of, of privilege, of prestige. And over the next thousand years since that happened, if you want to impress someone at a wedding or, or a business meeting, you serve shark fin soup because culturally in the Chinese mind, that's a sign of prestige. Is that like caviar? And it's, it's well, well, it has the prestige of caviar, but it has nowhere near the taste. Um, the shark fin soup is a horrible taste. Um, even you could cook better than shark fin soup. It is something that you have to have with uh, spices and all kinds of things to make it even edible. Now, Deb, to, to, to your question is that uh, Asian countries uh, beyond China, of course, their middle class is growing as we're trading more with them and they want that prestige. So when you're in uh, Thailand and, and you're at a business meeting, they'll serve shark fin soup. When you're at Macau at a, at a casino, you sit down at the restaurant and you're from an Asian country, you want shark fin soup. So the problem is pernicious, it's cultural. But I think at the same time, we have to argue to these societies that culture is not the ultimate trump card. It's what what's happening to our oceans and protecting a keystone species. So with that being said, whose responsibility is it ultimately? I mean, who to drive these conversations, right? When I think about um, the, which country in the world has the most coastlines, I think of Canada, right? Between Pacific, um, uh, Atlantic. Always blaming Canada, blame Canada, <laughs> blame Canada. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, you, you assume that the country with the most connection to the oceans will probably have the most responsibility um, to, to, to preserving it, to saving, coming up with ideas. I mean, is Canada stepping up and doing something about it? And who's driving these, uh, these, these, these conversations globally? Well, sadly, there, there's not, not enough conversation. Um, Canada uh, is not taking a, a leadership position. It's really the United States that has the power and should be the leader and, and tackling this issue. Now, the current regulation uh, out on the high seas, uh, I won't go into the details. I have it in my book if you want to learn more about it. But essentially, the Asian nice countries have, <laughs> have a say... <laughs> and I know you'll want to buy an extra copy for your friends, Jamie. And once we get those Asian countries thinking this way, then then something can happen. Because right now, those countries are actually blocking conservation measures. They won't cut down on the quota for certain types of tuna, like, like bluefin, because those Asian countries want that tuna. And they don't understand. They're actually shooting themselves in the foot because when you overfish, that species can end up going going away forever. And the example is what happened in Canada. Now here's, here's another chance we have a, to knock against the Canadians. The, the most productive um, fishing grounds in the world were the St. George's Bank, that whole area off of Canada. And Europeans used to come there and fish for cod for centuries. Well, the Canadians did not put in the quota system, so they overfished the cod. And in fact, got to the point where they stopped all cod fishing. And the cod in 20 years have yet to recover. And my view is they're never going to recover. So it shows you when countries don't act, you cross the point of no return. And so we have to stand up to the Chinese. The Chinese are exploiting the oceans around the world at a tremendous clip. And they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. Why? Because the oceans are owned by everybody. It's back to that communal concept I said earlier about the ocean farms. 
everyone owns the ocean. We have to be responsible partners and preserve what's out there. All right, Bill. So um, what's next for you? What's next for Safeguard the Seas? And what's the best way for people to uh, help? Well, I, I think the uh, there's a lot of work to be done with artificial reefs. And uh, I am having conversations with a couple of states to, to move that forward. Uh, I think there's a lot to do with, uh, with ocean farming. So I have no shortage of, of things to do. And uh, of course, my main mission right now with Safeguard the Seas is to get uh, that book out into people's hands so that we can educate everyone about all these issues. And so I'm going to keep on uh, keep on pushing that as well. So I have plenty of things to keep me going from dawn to dusk. So, Bill, I think we just we covered a lot of really interesting topics, right? We've, we've talked about the various uses of land. I mean, right now, it sounds as if we've got both farming. Uh, we've got reefs. Um, the multi-use of reefs, uh, providing uh, homes for, for wildlife, at the same time providing entertainment for, for humans and scuba diving and snorkeling and that good stuff. Um, there's also an area which we didn't really talk about much is, is the area of technology and how people, uh, large companies like Google and Facebook are submerging server farms into the oceans because it's cold. Um, I think Microsoft has a facility out west. Um, and, and, but it seems like there's a, a, a land grab both on land and now on sea where vast, vastly different and diverse uses are creating more opportunity for people and businesses and governments, it sounds like, to use the oceans in different ways that help humanity. As we see on land over centuries where the value of land has been dictated by the market and the uses of that land. Are we going to start seeing values of land underneath oceans change over the years? Well, um, I, I don't think that that is, we're not going to see dramatic changes uh, just because the, uh, the, the land under the, under the waves uh, is, is again communal. In the United States, we have set up a territorial limit of 200 miles. So everything within a 200 mile band is the property control of the United States government. Now, um, to your point that yes, countries are beginning to realize that it's not just fish out there. There are tremendously valuable minerals, manganese. And, uh, and, and oil, right? <laughs> yes, and, and, and oil, as you point out. And so if we're gonna have electric cars, which are going to help cut down on CO2 emission, where are we gonna get all the copper? Where are we going to get the, the lithium with the, the minerals to build these cars? It's going to have to come from the oceans. And there's a great worry that when they mine uh, in the oceans at these deep levels of uh, several hundred feet or even a thousand feet, that they'll disrupt the ocean and cause a tremendous amount of damage. So the world has to uh, set up rules and regulations for extraction of all these resources from the oceans. Again, Reminds me of the Antarctic Treaty System. Uh, they set that up with the basic overriding view that everyone owns the Antarctic. No one has one control. And uh, I'm afraid that if we don't set up something like this, we'll have some countries that will land grab. They will take resources that are way out in the deep oceans that no one really controls today and exploit it and, and harm the oceans. So uh, you bring up a great point, Alex. We're, we're, at, we're at a stage where we have to think about all these issues as a society 
and the United States is a leader, we have to take a very active stance. Well, if I had a dollar for every time somebody mentioned the Antarctic Treaty System, I'd be rich. But um, before we go, Bill, uh, I did want to uh, touch base on something that I've found so cool and interesting, which is there are a number of great white sharks who patrol the east coast of the U.S. that are tagged and kids, adults follow them online as to where they are and and their mating patterns where does somebody go to to follow that kind of thing yeah there's an organization called uh, o search and they uh, do tag great white sharks and you can follow them online their data is open free to, to everybody and they give a name to every shark uh, in the book i talk about a female great white called mary lee that was tagged several years ago and she caused quite a stir when she would approach land and she would get all kinds of tweets and uh, she was pinging uh, for a long time. So you, yeah, you can follow great whites uh, that way. They all, I think they also are expanding into other sharks. So it's a, it's a great way to, you know, get build a connection with the ocean. There's also something called global fishing watch and uh, they provide a website that is uh, satellites are looking down on the oceans and you can actually follow commercial fishing vessels that are out there. And the hope at Global Fishing Watch is that people will become citizen police and people that are illegal fishing or do doing something they shouldn't, that they can report them to the authorities. So you can follow the sharks, you can be uh, on the regulation side. Uh, the technology has, has been a boon for all this. Yay, 1984 all over again. Uh, well, Bill, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on today. Episode Land and Sea. We've learned a lot about the current condition of the oceans and their inhabitants. And more importantly, what the future is going to look like, how we can benefit and how we can help the environment. So thank you very much for taking the time. We look forward to hearing about how things are going with your nonprofit, Safeguard the Seas, as well as other endeavors. Okay. Thank you guys for having me on. And I look forward to keeping up with you. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealstate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.